Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, uh, Tom, how are you today? Hi, Russ. I'm doing great. You're doing great. Good. Good. Nothing new in your background for me to tease you about. So I don't no. know what I'm going to do. That's I like need to set something up. Yeah, I know. I got. <laughs> I got nothing to say. And today we are joined by the she shed. I'm I here. think there's a person out there too. But yeah. So I don't have it out here yet, but my husband and I just got back from an anniversary trip to Hawaii and I brought back some knickknacks that need to go on the shelf. So there oh. will be there will be new mementos back there soon. Awesome. Great. And today we are joined by Javier. Javier, did I say it right? Javier? Javier? Yes, Javier. 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 Okay, okay, yes. okay, Javier. So where are you, Javier? I'm in the warm and sunny Valencia in Spain. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Enjoying the, you know, the start of the spring. Really warm these days here. <laughs> oh, wow. That stinks. <laughs> it's good for you. It's freezing here, but that's okay. The, the rest of us are whiling away our days in the cold and Javier's in the warm sunshine every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Javier, you've been working on a project around cloud AI. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and what is going on with that? Yeah, so you know, a few years back, I uh, you know my my background is is networking, right? Is um, you know MPLS BGP that's been my life for let's say the past twenty years, right? But uh, you know, a few years back, I I got pretty much intrigued by how we could you know start merging together and and leveraging in networking more about what you know apparently machine learning could could bring, right? So so I started to to work on on you know trying to connect the dots about that and and the you know the final or late, maybe the latest step on that journey has been uh you know a book where where I've been trying to where I'm trying to help let's say the in general the network engineering and and cloud engineering community to become more familiar with these techniques and to understand what are the opportunities that for them personally and maybe for the infrastructures they are responsible for or they work with uh, uh you know can bring right? Okay, so let's start here. You're, would you differentiate between AI and ML, or is that like you're not an AI person, so maybe that's not a fair question or a good question to ask you? <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, terminology is always very very fuzzy, but in, in general, you know, if we have to be like very Buddhist, you know, AI means the set of techniques that are intended for a machine to imitate human behavior. Right. That's that's the strict definition of it. But that includes potentially a lot of different things. Even and if this then that rule could be considered AI in the sense that it tries to make a decision that otherwise a human would make. So expert systems, rule-based systems would fall into the overall AI category. You know, now the focus as, a, as an industry or so as maybe in the world now these days is about machine learning. It's that discipline within AI that uses data to imitate human behavior, right? To train algorithms that can imitate human behavior. And that's where a lot of the magic happens. How so can you use data from different sources, you know, label data or unlabeled data, structure or unstructured, that all depends on the use cases to produce some outcomes that effectively either help a human in a task, in a decision, or 
maybe eventually even you know can replace it right so that's that's kind of the difference ai is a broader term ml means using data to bring outcomes okay so yeah replacing a human i think you that was a trigger there someplace <laughs> well you say that i didn't say that. <laughs> I, I said eventually <laughs> eventually replacing a human i don't know if i wanted to replace this week I don't know. It depends. If it means I can move to Spain and hang out in the sunshine all the time, uh, that's okay. No way, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay with me. So you wrote a book on this, and that's kind of what we're talking about. So tell us a little bit about the book project. And I guess it's already published, too. It's published on and stuff like that. So we have a, yeah. a better sense of that side of the things. Yeah, the, the, the book is, uh, I started this project really to take its shape of a book uh, like two years and a half or so ago. I started actually as a as a blog post in my in my LinkedIn page. I was uh, I was calling it network AI automation, like trying to merge automation with AI in some very stupid way. <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, when I started, I, I did a couple of posts, but they I was probably going way too deep to what uh, a LinkedIn post probably you know um, accepts. Uh, it was a LinkedIn article, but anyway, people probably would not spend so much time reading and going through code and whatnot. So I, I felt that, hey, I wanted to compile it, it, this in a way that, you know, could others could consume and could, um, you know, get that more detailed story about ML. And that's that was the origin. Uh, the, I, I, I published recently a book in, uh, in uh, it's available in Amazon. It's called uh, Machine Learning for Network and Cloud Engineers. And it's really about learning uh, getting the big picture about machine learning, learning the, the spectrum of different algorithms with you know a basic level of depth on each of the algorithms themselves, but always contextualized in network use cases, right? What, what, what I've seen over the many years that I've been uh, studying and reading and researching around ML is that of course there's you know almost infinite literature. There's there's you know books for all sorts of algorithms and and whatnot, right? But it's such a broad field that for, a, I would say, an network engineer uh, that wants to, you know, get introduced into this, into this field, into this world, it's extremely challenging. You don't know where to start. What, I mean, you, we buy books. I buy books. I've been buying books for my entire, like, professional life to learn about protocols, et cetera. So, so if I go and find, okay, what book do I buy on machine learning? Right, there's so many different algorithms. I don't even know where to start, or probably I will start by the wrong place, or I will end up wasting money on things that I don't know that are not useful, like neural networks with TensorFlow. Oh, that looks extremely interesting, so I'll go buy that one. But is that really useful for me for what I want to accomplish? Maybe yes, or maybe not. So I wanted to help in that first step, and that's what the book offers: uh, a very broad view but always contextualize in, in use cases that resonate in our, in our daily activities. Is it about BGP or is it about SD1 or is it about how do I, you know, uh, detect anomalies in configurations, right? Things that are pain points that we usually deal with in a, in a network operation. So could you, could you go into a couple of those use cases just to kind of make it real practical right off the bat here? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, in the, the, the book is basically structured in two parts. The first part is mostly like theory, explaining, uh, you know, a bit of the history and, and a bit of the, you know, all the spectrum of algorithms. Again, 
with with a limited level of depth on on each of them. I'm not trying to go into the like mathematical uh, uh, or or theory behind each of the algorithms because I don't think it is truly uh, you know meaningful for us at this stage. But the second part of the book is focused on use cases, and I've tried to. There are ten use cases, and I've tried to to elaborate on those use cases with code, right? With notebooks and, and Python code, a way that the people can tangibly see, okay, how do I use this algorithm to solve this problem? Examples of, of some of those use cases, I would say the, the two use cases that I that I personally like the most because I think are, are quite, um, I would say, uh, significant in terms of how we certain algorithm can be used to solve a problem. So um, one of them, it's it's about detecting you know, especially the you know when, when it comes to a network, a large network infrastructure, or maybe may a cloud infrastructure, there's always a lot of a, a big variety of devices, right? There's there's different types of devices, maybe network devices of different vendors, or different models within a vendor, or different software releases within a vendor and a model. So there's there's always combinations of factors that ultimately will determine how that network is, so, is running, right? Um, maybe you have a software release in your access or in your metro, then you have another software release in your in your aggregation. Maybe there is another hardware, a different hardware in the core with a different software release, et cetera. So you end up, ha- you end up having, having a, a combination of factors that determine how the, you know, the network is operated. Now, some of these factors might result into failures, right? There could be certain combinations of those factors that are particularly sick, if you will. And sometimes not even vendors might be aware of those of that toxicity in that sense, because the, or, or you might have tested maybe a software release with a certain model, but but maybe with a different model, that software release is not operating as exactly as expected. So how do you know that? How can you surface those toxic combinations, especially when might not be just one factor, it's a combination of them. So this is all about the data and how do you analyze the data and process the data and find those, let's say, what you call frequent patterns, right? So in this example, I'm using a type of technique that is used in you know, retail recommendation systems, like in Amazon, or if you go to, you know, like a supermarket and you you buy certain you know items in your basket, and maybe you get a recommendation, oh, maybe you want to buy this or that, right? So that type of technique is intended to surface frequent patterns in how people purchase things or what what people purchase together. So the same type of technique, you can use it to find patterns for what attributes, what factors in your network go together when those problems happen. So uh, I am I'm, I'm using some uh, specific you know, uh, uh, data set of events in a network, in a simulated network that I have. And the use case demonstrates how with these techniques, you can actually surface those, uh, those toxic combinations that otherwise would be extremely difficult to, to identify. Right. So how do you how do you teach how do you teach the machine about what is a normal uh, pattern of events versus what is a pathological pattern of events? Yeah, yeah. So in this case, it is it is very simple in the sense that the input to to the system or to the let's say analysis is let's say your network failures. Let's say you've had interface failures, for example. 
right? So every time you have an interface failure on the network, you know it. There is maybe an SNP trap, or that there is maybe a syslog message. So there is a there is a register of those failures. If you can enrich those failures with additional colors, where those colors are okay, the device, the software, the version of the device where this interface failed is this one. The model of this where the, of the device that failed is this one. Uh, maybe the vendor is this one. Maybe the location. I mean, there could be a, a number of factors that you introduce into the equation. So then you have the right data set. You have the failures that you want to analyze. And then you have also the uh, the attributes. So you are combining somehow the data that you have from your inventory, maybe from your network source of truth or your CMDB with the alerts that you are maybe receiving from the network traps or syslogs. You can cross-analyze both and apply this type of technique that is called, you know, frequent patterns. So it's an it's an algorithm. It's a well-known algorithm to identify frequent patterns, and and you can basically get an insight that otherwise, again, it, you know, I've, I've I've talked to many customers over years, and this this theme of um, you know toxic combinations, it's always been there. I, how can I know what is causing problems in my network? I mean, some things might be very obvious if you deploy a new software release. And that release, you know, fails a lot. Yeah, you know, right? Or if you have, if you, if 90% of your network is running a certain software release, very likely most of your problems will be associated to that software release just by the nature of the statistics, right? But what if, I don't know, if 5% of your network is running a different software release, but it's generating proportionally a much larger number of problems that otherwise would correspond to it. So how can you combine those different perspectives? And it's not just a software release, but it's the fact that it's a software release with a combination of hardware that is failing. So those things, I mean, it's not really easy uh, or, or or obvious. How can how can they be fixed or solved? But now with these techniques, if people become more aware of that these techniques are 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 possible or or are applicable to the network, yeah, they can be they can be more easily addressed. So, so basically, you're not trying to find things that are abnormal per se. You're just looking for things that exist, patterns that mm-hmm. exist. And then you, as a human, are looking down on that pattern and saying, that pattern looks okay. This one over here, however, this looks bad. Because this is the most common criticism or con- concern with one of the most common criticisms or concern with machine learning and networks is what does normal look like? And, you know, even for cloud-based services, there are several vendors who now have cloud-based services who will say, oh, we'll tell you if your network is broken, we'll cut out the false positives for you. The problem is every Mm -hmm. network is different, right? You can't necessarily know that what looks right in Amazon's network is what's right in Google's network or my network or whatever it is. Exactly. You brought up a very good point, actually. Uh, And that's one of the challenges in general for Many of these techniques, and I would say in general for for applying net machine learning to or let's say networking field or, or cloud field, and it's the fact that you know I, I think we we are all always fam- all familiar with the term snowflake, right? Every network is a snowflake. Every cloud is a snowflake, also for that matter, right? But that that means, and and I think every network is a snowflake probably for valid reasons. I'm not criticizing anyone's like engineering choices. There's always a reason why things are done in a certain way. But, you know, the fact that 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 doesn't change the fact that every network is different for that uh, uh, for those reasons. And 
And when you try to apply some of these techniques, especially those that those techniques that that are in the context of supervised uh, learning, which is, hey, you have some data that you are maybe you have gathered from um, from a network from a customer. Then you train, let's say, some model to do some kind of prediction. Let's say whatever it is, right? Um, now, to which extent you can apply that model that you have trained to other customers, right? To other networks. There's a lot of challenges to do that precisely because every network is a snowflake, and it's it's extremely difficult to extrapolate to generalize when you don't have, you know common schemes, common approaches, common even common data models uh, for that matter. So to your to your point, then that that leads into in many cases to only rely on uh, what what's called unsupervised techniques. And and the majority of the functionality or the say or the use cases in that uh, set of techniques are anomaly detection. So detecting what is normal and what is not, right? And that's always a challenge because um, what is normal and what is not, it's very subjective, subjected to that particular context and subjected to the you know human interpretation of that. We use different techniques to try to get an approximation or have a proxy view of what normality is. For me, normality is okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the past and I consider the past normal. So I learn normality from the past, and maybe if what I see now is different from the past. That's not normal. That's yeah. that's a proxy. View yeah, that's a proxy. Of normality, and it's actually which a very might or might not proxy. be right. Yeah, that's yeah. a very rough proxy. Then in yeah. in other cases, you say, okay, you know, maybe the past is not the only option. Maybe I will look at, for example, if I'm if I'm an, if I'm analyzing data from, um, let's say, my top of the rack switches, right? In my in my data center, I probably have a few hundreds, if not a few thousands, of top of the rack switches. Very likely, they are from let's say the same vendor, uh, or maybe a couple of vendors. But let's say we have a large number of the same vendor, same hardware model, and very likely they're even running the same software release. So you would expect, you know, all these entities to behave very similarly. So you could learn what is normal by learning what is normal across all those entities. What matters now is not the past, is what others are doing, what other devices are behaving, how they are behaving compared to the device that I'm now analyzing. If I'm looking at, let's say, memory utilization, I would expect my memory utilization in this device to be roughly at the same range as the majority are. But if my memory utilization, let's say the majority are around 25%, but if my memory utilization is at 50% utilization, this is not something that you would have raised as, hey, you know, this is critical, you know, something is going to fail because you would usually have a threshold at 90 or 95% in your, let's say, operation software. But the fact that one device or maybe a handful of devices, it's operating at 50%, whereas the 98% are operating at 25%, it might mean something. It might not mean anything bad. It's just that they are configured differently for whatever reason, and that's totally okay. But the normality now is set yeah. by the majority. So or again, they are, they are it's supporting a, a different proxy. Kind of, yeah, or they're, they're supporting a different kind of workload. So for instance, exactly. if, you know, the, the, but, but the key is that you can figure out what the difference is. You see the difference and then you can justify it. You can at least tell a just so story about why that might happen to be, seems to be the important 
point. Now, Yvonne said there were other use cases in there. Yvonne, do you have any that you were really? Yeah, I, well, I think one of the um, one of the use cases is how many subscribers will be online in my network. And I think we all like capacity planning is uh, a really big challenge for, for most of us, right? Whether we're talking about infrastructure, whether we're talking about networks. So if, if, if you have a, a corpus of data that helps you do a more intelligent capacity planning over a period of time, that, that can be incredibly valuable, especially for service providers, cloud providers. And, and you're probably going to gain some insights with um, machine learning that you know, you're not going to see just by like, oh, well, it's Black Friday. We know we're going to get a bunch of traffic, right? That, that that may have more nuance that you wouldn't initially be able to determine. So I think that's a really interesting use case. Yeah, um, absolutely. And actually, you, you brought um, um, a very interesting point there because the, the process of detecting uh, or predicting or forecasting a certain metric uh, or a certain data point in the network towards the future involves not just the metric as well, but whether there is certain seasonality associated to it, which different types of algorithms can deal or cannot deal with that. So definitely, you know, uh, the or most of or many metrics in in networks follow the human behavior patterns of you know days of the week or hours of the day. So any forecasting mechanism, any prediction needs to take that into account. But also there are special events, right? Special events that might not happen so regularly. But they happen and, and somehow you might need to be able to signal the existence or the upcoming event that already happened last year and it had certain impact, right? Now it is coming again. Maybe it's not exactly the same day, uh, like the Super Bowl, right? It's not the same day, but it's, you know, but you can maybe indicate uh, by giving a signal to the algorithm that it's going to have probably the same impact as it had uh, the previous year. So yeah, they, they, and in the, in the use case on, uh, on the book uh, around uh, forecasting, yeah, some of these algorithms are, are tested. Uh, I, I never intend, by the way, in all these use cases to provide like, like what is the optimal solution? Because I'm not even, you know, trying to. I, I, I prefer to show several options and help the reader understand how, what are the pros and cons of each of the options, what are the, the ways to configure or to, to make use of any of these algorithms, and, and you know, let, let, let the reader uh, maybe take it from there and improve it uh, eventually, right? So, so there are simple algorithms that might allow or, or might facilitate this type of prediction or forecasting up to potentially very complex, you know, neural network-based approaches, which in some cases produce good results and some other cases, you know, might not. So, uh, yeah, and that's, that's definitely a very, uh, a very key use case, um, you know, of, of interest. I've seen it, many customers interested on this over, over years. Yeah. You, you've used a couple of terms that I think could use just a little bit more uh, expansion, uh, supervised versus unsupervised learning. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little yeah. bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is this is a very, you know, these are very frequent terms that um, in conversations, you know, when, with a vendor or with, you know, people in the industry, people might mention or, or hear, and it's not and I don't think any well everyone has a, a good um so I think thanks uh, thanks for for asking this so when it comes to algorithms you know as I said earlier right machine learning is a very broad it includes a very broad spectrum of algorithms so somehow we need to classify them right 
And one way to classify them is based on what we know from the data, what we have associated to that data. So, and that leads into this difference between unsupervised and supervised. Sometimes we only have the data itself. We only have um, maybe metrics from devices, or we only have um, you know, certain data points that we are receiving. And that's that's all we have. So we need to find ways to extract knowledge from the data itself. We don't know exactly what's in there. We try to find patterns or we try to find anomalies or we try to find groups, clusters. This is the type of use cases that we frame as unsupervised. Unsupervised means we don't have a label or a target associated to that data that we're receiving. And by, by label or target means we don't have anything specific that we are trying to predict or that we are trying to classify. Like, okay, I have a bunch of emails and I want to classify if they are spam or not spam. That is a supervised type of exercise and I will explain that in a minute. But let's imagine that you only have the emails. You don't know whether they are spam or not. There's no indication at all. You only have emails, so maybe you could you could think of, hey, maybe I can group them together to find if there are if there is some commonality on them, or I can identify if there is any anomalous email compared to maybe others. So that would be unsupervised. Opposed to unsupervised is the supervised techniques. And the supervised techniques imply that you have your data, your input data, but all those data points of your sample of those observations have one label associated. What is the label? Is the characteristic that you are that you want to predict or that you want to eventually identify for new samples of data? In the example of emails, you have a set a, a set of emails, but then you have a label that says this email is a spam or this email is not a spam, or this picture is from a dog or from a cat. Those are the labels, right? And why do you have the labels? Because then there is. It's a set of algorithms and techniques that will allow you to train a model with that data that you have already, right? And once that model is trained, new data that will arrive without a label, you will be able to predict the label. And you want to predict whether it's a spam or not a spam, or you want to predict whether an image is a dog or a cat. So that's the difference in, a, in an unsupervised case. You're basically... You know, you don't know anything about the data. You're just trying to extract some knowledge from it. In a supervised case, you have a clear target that you want to predict or classify. You have emails and you want to classify whether they are spam or not. And you have a data set that includes the, the email itself, the data, as well as your target, your label. Then you can train a model to perform the task in a, you know, maybe hopefully in an accurate way. So that's the main difference between unsupervised and supervised. So would you would you ever try to validate one against the other? Are there use cases for that? Like I I said I just said it I didn't tell it any rules. It's totally unsupervised, and I got an answer, and then I super and then compare the answers. Is that ever something that is useful? Not 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 really in the sense that I mean one one temptation that I see very frequently is to try to compare. This, these different techniques, like one is better than the other or something like that. And they are, I mean, this is like always, I mean, I'm just going to say something that maybe you guys will, will say. This is like comparing OSPF and BGP. What is better? 
what is is OSPF better than BGP? Well, I mean, no, it's just there. They have different purposes. So this is the equivalent to this, right? There are different problems that can be solved with these unsupervised techniques, which are completely different from the problems that can be solved with supervised techniques. So they are complementary, actually. Okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so basically, supervised just means I have a target, I have a goal, something I'm trying to accomplish. Unsupervised just means yes. I'm exploring. I'm just trying to yes. figure out, like, are there correlations out here? Now, a specific area that I've worked with in the past is gray failures. Do you have any experience looking at gray failures and, like, is it possible to find them? You know, I'm thinking specifically about you have an interface dropping 5% of the traffic or 1% of the traffic. Like, is that the kind of thing that you think you can find or that you've been able to find with this? Yeah, I mean, great failures is a is a very good use case for um, unsupervised techniques, in particular the the so called anomaly detection, right? Because it maybe has not failed completely, but there is some indication that it's behaving dif differently from others. Like there is some maybe packet drops if you are measuring packet drops, or maybe there is some different memory utilization, uh, like in the example earlier, right? Maybe I have you know, 50% memory utilization, that doesn't seem like a failure. It could be normal, right? But hey, all the others are at 25. Why Why do we have this? So that's so there are techniques in this space of unsupervised. And, and one of the use cases in the book is primarily, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, explain and, and to show and, and uh, several options of, of those algorithms that are quite effective. But again, there's no one size fits all in in all this, right? And and always the interpretation of what is normal or not might require some always some human judgment, right? And that that's also a, you know an important point that uh, maybe we can discuss later, right? Which is, you know, regardless how you know great or of these algorithms might be or or how effective we think they are, they will always require some level of human supervision, in the sense of human judgment to determine whether the output is is adequate. Or it can be interpreted as as a bad behavior. Definitely, it's anomalous. But whether it's bad or not, it's up to the human interpretation. Yeah, I, and that's that's kind of one of the the topics I wanted to touch on. I'm I'm making my way through the book. I haven't made it all the way through it yet. I'm kind of going through slow because <laughs> it's dense and it's a lot lot to absorb. But one of the things I appreciate about it first is it's. It's, 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 there's no FUD, there's no marketing terms. It's very, very clear and very practical. I think we've heard about AI and ML technologies for years in networking gear yeah. to the point where we're all like, you know, that's just the latest buzzword, right? But I think, yeah. first of all, it, it breaks it down. It, it demystifies the terms. But one of the things you talk a lot in the in the book is like a lot of AI ML techniques really are brute force. And the as as I read, I'm really beginning to see how much there is still human intervention to help tune the algorithms. And they're very, very specific to your data and your use case. I think we have this yeah. idea that this technology is just going to understand everything and take over the world. But I think the things, the areas in which we see that is because there has been a human behind the scenes, monitoring this brute force process to validate that the model is actually producing meaningful results. And I think for me, 
going through the book, at least so far, that was that was one of the things that was eye opening is is that that part of the process. So um, I just found that really helpful, enlightening and, and meaningful. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I think historically there's been that perception that, um, you know, AI is this magical black box that you threw something and then it produces magically some results and it could it couldn't be farther from the reality. It's a toolbox. It's a box that it, that has a lot of different algorithms for different problems. So anything that we do in machine learning, it's always contextualized to a particular problem. Don't try to solve a different problem with that model, let's say, because it will not work. It just, you know, it's been trained or designed or fine-tuned or customized or configured for that. And yes, uh, you know, even in that particular problem or that particular algorithm, you know, there's a lot of fine-tuning you know, aspects, right, that need to happen to make sure that for the particular use case that you want to solve, there is, um, you know, that that this approach that you are taking works. Some of that, those decisions need to happen by the domain expert, by the, you know, the human that is kind of making those decisions. And also very frequently, those decisions are are made by applying a little bit more brute force, basically saying, hey, okay, I don't know what a what what is the right parameter for this? So I'm gonna try all, and so I'm gonna run the model like 100 times or 1,000 times, and let's see which one it works. And the reason for this, and it looks at like a bit okay, you know, isn't there a more intelligent way to do it? The problem is that most of these techniques and algorithms are highly non-linear. The behavior is highly unpredictable before trying any, any of these things. And especially the more complex the models are, like neural networks and whatnot, the impact of changing one parameter in the model from you know like 2% or 5% might be completely unpredictable. So the only way to know is by testing. And then of course, people might develop some intuition over time about you know what might or might not work for the specific use cases. But yeah, brute force, it's an inherent part of the of the process. And it's also something that we kind of, you know, uh, need to need to assume as part of the normal. And I think even we coming from, you know, the networking and the cloud world, that's something probably we understand better because cloud is all about is all about brute force. It's all about bringing together all those capabilities that have been used for for so many use cases. But now, you know, ML is basically one of those, right? How to take advantage of the cloud and all those compute resources. To bring to train and and to optimize those uh, those models for you know a wide variety of scenarios, um, but the human will always be in the equation for sure. <sighs> yeah, in fact, one of the dangers to me of that is is that just like when you walk up to the counter and somebody says to you, "Well, the system won't let me let you return this," right? It's not the system. Somebody programmed the system to do that, and they're using it like a lab coat. I'm going to put on this lab coat and tell you the system won't let me do that. Like, no, no, there's somebody behind that decision still. And so, yeah, I think we tend to, as people, look at something that's come a, come out of a, an algorithm or whatever you want to call it as being somehow above reproach or something i don't know how to put it and that's really not true that's just really just not the way these things work and and i would add to that uh if i may just one one point 
the algorithms will always make mistakes, right? No matter how good, let's say we we train a model in the, in the book, I, I I talk about some like situation. Uh, it's not real, but I was just trying to to recreate in a scenario. I talk, you know, let's say you have a model that you've you know very trained, very consciously, very with a lot of data. You get like ninety nine percent, ninety nine dot nine percent accuracy. So it's a great model that will predict, I don't know, certain failures in the network. What that means is that once out of 1,000 times, it will make a mistake, right? All models, no matter how good they are, they will fail at the scale because they are statistical in nature. There's, there's some degree of accuracy, but that means there's some degree of failure. So we need to be ready as well, you know, as a, as a networking industry to, to address the failure and to either have the, the right mechanisms to for the humans to deal with the failure or to be able to explain the failure. And both are you know, issues that need to be addressed, right? Explainability is a whole field in machine learning because it's extremely challenging sometimes to explain failures, to explain decisions, right? You know, so so I think, yeah, that that's you know, we we need to keep in mind that these models eventually will fail. And that needs to be part of the process as well. And that that really gets interesting as you start thinking about using these uh, technologies more at scale, because there is the law of large numbers, right? And and 0.1% mm-hmm. of a really large number is a really exactly. large number, right? And so we 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 need to always be 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 mindful of that and and um, be aware that there are going to be edge cases that uh, that the algorithm will miss. So um, it's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. It is me too. Yeah. So, um, Tom, any further thoughts, questions? No, it's been great. Thank you. Anything, Yvonne? Uh, no, I'm I'm enjoying the book and finding it uh, fascinating and really glad that uh, Javier came on to yeah. share with us and that he's put so much time and effort into into this project. So I know it's been that there's been a lot of sweat equity there. Yeah, no, it's it's great to have somebody who's exploring new stuff in the technology field. I tend to get stuck down in routing protocols and learning new stuff about routing. And I tend to forget that there's like all this other stuff out there that needs to be dealt with. So yeah, the, the, the network management side, and this is really cool. So Javier, um, do you have places where people can follow you? Do you have a blog or anything like that? Well, primarily LinkedIn. I think they can, they can find me in LinkedIn and that's where I'm basically, I'm trying to uh, socialize and, and put some, uh, you know, tips and, and, uh, and things around around the book. I've I've also created a page, a LinkedIn page, uh, just you know, centered around the book, and I will be posting there as well. You know, things that I find interesting from the networking industry com- combined to to AI, AI to help also you know people get more familiar and follow uh, what is going on uh, you know in between machine learning and and networking. Totally awesome. So, Yvonne, where can people follow you? Uh, always, they can come um, to the can, shed. I, you can come. Absolutely, <laughs> I've got a couple of spare chairs. So um, <laughs> if you if you find yourself in or around Louisville or Western Kentucky, hit me up on Twitter. Um, yeah, but you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network or on LinkedIn, um, Yvonne Sharp. Awesome. You know what's really funny about that, Yvonne, is I now live in Louisville. Ah, not not Louisville, as Louisville. we say. Although we have a city next to us called we would it's Maryville, so you think Maryville? It's not. It's Merville. 
Merville. Yeah. It's just it's just one of those southern things. You got you gotta love those Appalachian accents. <laughs> it's just a thing. And Tom, where can people follow you or get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for my LinkedIn name. LinkedIn and Twitter. All right. I'm Russ Witch. You can always find me here at the hedge, rule11.tech. LinkedIn, whatever, whatever. Lots of ways to find me. So if you want to, just you'll get in touch with me and whatever. If you have a good topic for the show, someone you think we ought to bring, bring, be bringing on, I can't talk, uh, please uh, let me know. And joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.